are entering the Freedom Hut. Some fireworks on Capitol Hill. Corey Lewandowski wasn't going to take it lying down today when Democrats tried a little show trial action against him. We'll talk about that. And also, oh, that's right, the New York Times is doubling down on the bombshell story that blew up in their face. We'll get into that. And Iran versus Saudi Arabia is a war on the horizon. We've got so much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. You think I can speak for three hours without a phone call? Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. He called the attorney general to ask him to unrecuse himself from the special counsel's investigation. Sessions said no. His White House counsel said there should be no contact with Sessions because of his recusal. So what does the president do? He calls you in to do what everyone else wouldn't do. He called you in to do his dirty work in secret because he knew it was wrong. Well, we will expose the truth. The president can hide behind you any longer. And you should be here to be telling the truth, Lewandowski, because the truth will set you free and the American people. I yield back. The time of the gentlelady has expired. The witness may answer the question. I don't believe there was a question, Congressman. Very well. Yes, there was. Could you repeat the question? I didn't hear it. I'd be happy to repeat the question. Just a rant. (laughs) Just a rant. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Tombstone's one of my favorite movies. Top 20, I'd say. I wouldn't put it in the top 10, but I think it probably makes it in the top 20. I've seen it a hundred, a hundred times. There's a really, there's a bunch of very, very good lines in it, right? And one of my favorites is when Kurt Russell tells the kind of weaselly sheriff guy, I don't think I'll let you arrest us today, Behan. Remember that? Well, Corey Lewandowski, when the Democrats decided to go after him today and try to make a scene and try to basically stood up there in Capitol Hill and said to all the assembled Democrats going after him with everything he had, I don't think I'll uh, I'll let you arrest arrest me today. (laughs) You could try to do the whole uh, uh, you could try to do holding him in contempt, but I don't think that's going to work. Uh, they could call the sergeant at arms. Technically, they could, they could go for it, but that would make quite a scene. And here's the real point of all this, folks. It was a a total mess today, a total mess on Capitol Hill. And I think that there's a lesson to be learned here. Jerry Nadler, for example, uh, got very frustrated at one point by all of this. Um, here's here's what uh, Jerry Nadler said. Ever suggest to the president or anyone else that you thought your communications with him were official White House communications? Congressman, the White House has directed not, I not disclose the substance of any discussions with the president or his advisors to protect executive branch yes. confidentiality. And I recognize this is not my privilege, but I am respecting the White House's decision. Let me ask you some questions about your relationship with the president after he assumed office. How many times has the president asked you to meet him in the White House? The White House is directed not to disclose the substance of How any discussions. How many times did you meet with the president alone in the White House in 2017? I don't know the answer to that. How many times did he direct you to deliver a message to a member of his cabinet? The White House is directed not to disclose the substance of any discussions did with the ever, president. Did he ever discuss with you any concerns that he may have committed a criminal offense? 
The White House has directed not to disclose the substance of any discussions with the President or his advisors to protect you, executive so branch confidentiality. Right, I recognize this is not my privilege. Mr. So Chairman, I make a point of order. Pursuant to Clause 2J2A of Rule 111, we get it. Enough, enough. We get it. We get it. That's more or less what the hearing was today. That is what was going on at the uh, House Judiciary Committee hearing with uh, Corey Lewandowski, former uh, you know, advisor to Trump, campaign manager for, uh, for President Trump. And uh, I got to tell you, I think that Corey Lewandowski was taking the right approach here. The process is the punishment with them with uh, process is the punishment with Democrats. We know this. This is why they keep bringing back the same different, the same narratives. You know, oh, but let's have more hearings. Let's have more investigation. Oh, the FBI didn't investigate Kavanaugh enough. Now they want a new investigation. We'll get to the Kavanaugh stuff. The special counsel, Robert Mueller, he didn't investigate enough around around Trump and Russia collusion and, and obstruction. And, you know, let's have more investigation. There's never enough investigation because it's just harassment. It's undermining. It's the absence of good faith, the absence of seriousness, of decency, of worthwhile purpose from these congressional Democrats. Just just needling, going after, poking at every person around Trump, just trying to do everything that they can to try to undermine them, rattle them. And so Corey Lewandowski was just not having it today. He's like, I've been told by the White House not to answer. You're a co-equal branch of government. Take it up with the White House. Corey Lewandowski, all these guys, they've already spoken to the special counsel. They've been through how much interrogation is enough. You know, what if what if Congress wanted to have somebody call a witness, you know, every day that Congress was in session? I mean, is, is there a point at which it's obvious that this is harassment to everybody? Because it should be there right now. Oh, let's have more more hearings on impeachment. Let's talk. They they have the full report from Mueller. They have the report, and, and today there were some moments where, you know, they were telling, uh, they were telling Corey Lewandowski, you know, oh well, well you need to read this, and he just said, I'm I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to stand here and or sit here rather. <laughs> it's not standing. I'm not going to sit here and just jump when you say jump. Do whatever you tell me to do. He's a citizen. He has rights. He doesn't have to sign up for the humiliation uh, humiliation session that the Democrats are insisting on. So he stood his ground. I got to tell you, I've I've never I've never been uh, impressed by Corey Lewandowski before. Now, that's not to say that I just I've never been impressed by the guy. I've never heard him say anything particularly insightful. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I also I've interviewed him a couple times. Nice enough guy. Fine. But. Today, I was like, wow, I, I kind of understand now why Trump feels the way he does about Corey Lewandowski. He's a fighter. This is nonsense. The Democrats don't, the Democrats in Congress don't deserve respect when doing the things that they were doing today. Oh, read this section of, of the Mueller report. It was all about just trying to get their, their cable news moment. Oh, look at that soundbite really showing us how strong they are with the resistance. It's not about good government. It's not about fixing anything. And in fact, uh, Corey Lewandowski made that case. In conclusion, and it's sad to say, this country has spent over three years and 40 million taxpayer dollars on these investigations. 
And it's now clear that the investigation was populated by many Trump haters who had their own agenda to take down a duly elected president of the United States. As for actual collusion or conspiracy, there was none. What there has been, however, is harassment of this president from the day he won the election. We as a nation would be better served if elected officials like yourself concentrated your efforts to combat the true crises facing our country, as opposed to going down rabbit holes like this hearing. Instead of focusing on petty and personal politics, the committee focused on solving the challenges of this generation. Imagine how many people we could help, or how many lives we could save. Nah, Democrats don't want to do any of that stuff. They don't want to try to fix problems. They, they want to create more problems for anybody who ever worked for Donald Trump. They want to drag them through the mud. They want to ruin them. I mean, look at look at how the Democrats do their version of opposition to the Republican Party at this point. Their 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 ideas, their their responses that are supposed to make things better for the American people. That's all an afterthought. What they really want to do is just destroy the other side. It's just a a ferocious hatred for Trump, for anybody who's worked for Trump. And they want to humiliate people and they want to destroy them. They have no common decency whatsoever in this process. And so that's why when Corey Lewandowski decides that he's going to take the position that this is a sham, that the people that are asking these questions have no interest in getting to the truth, that this isn't about illuminating any subject for the American people, that this is just meant to humiliate someone to make them make their life more difficult in order to prop up the political fortunes of a bunch of status Democrat loons who are completely consumed with anti-Trump hatred. He's just not having it. You know, they, they do this thing where they ask him a question. And I guess members of Congress, because, oh, it's in the Congress and, you know, people really have to treat it like it's this sacred place. I mean, Congress is full of clowns. Unfortunately, there are clowns on the Republican side, too, but not as many as on the Democrat side, but full of clowns. And that's really on us, I suppose. And the American people, we're voting for them. So you know, I'm sitting here in New York and uh, we're not exactly putting forward the best congressmen and congresswomen here. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you from the place that gave America elected official AOC. So She's the boss, apparently, at least of what one congressional district. So Corey decided that he was going to punch back. He was going to fight back. And you could tell Democrats were a little flummoxed by this. They're used to just being able to talk over witnesses, you know. Oh, the Mueller report. Let's talk about Mueller. They ask questions. They don't want answers. They ask questions merely as a form of attack so that they can then over talk and override whatever the response was going to be. And this is, for example, the classic CNN anchor maneuver that I used to deal with. Explain to me why Donald Trump is racist and worse than Hitler, the CNN anchor would ask. And I'd say, well, I think that's really a proposal. But he's worse than Hitler. We all know this. Let's have another guest come in and say it. I mean, that's what the members of Congress do. It's like they're all these Democrats are auditioning for you know a little weekend show at MSNBC or their or their you know morning show at CNN or whatever, they're not being respectful to the witness. And it's so funny too. You see the way that uh, the Democrats when when someone like like James Comey is testifying in front of the Congress or or someone like Bob Mueller, it's like oh my hush tones. 
thank you so much, sir, for your service. What you've done is amazing. You're so you're just such a patriot. Now, tell us why Donald Trump should be destroyed and everybody around him has betrayed the country. I mean, you know, this is what they do. And it's so tiresome. And I can imagine for people that are engaged in, in what's going on in the country and want to know about politics insofar as it affects them and it affects their families and their communities, they've got to look at this and just think, is this the best we can do? And if not that, at least they can look at Corey Lewandowski with the line of the day here when Eric Swalwell, who is just, he's just a, he's just an empty suit. Guy's got nothing. When Swalwell decides to do exactly what all these Democrats were doing, just try to poke at Lewandowski, try to make him look bad. Corey, for the win. I'm happy to have you read it, Congressman. Well, why don't you want to read it, Mr. Lewandowski? I think you should afford me the same privilege you afforded Director Mueller. Would you like to read it? No, you're welcome to read it. Are you ashamed of the words that you wrote down? President Swalwell, I'm very happy of what I've written, but you're welcome to read it if you'd like. Are you you ashamed to read it out loud? I'm not ashamed of anything in my life, Congressman, are you? Then why don't you read the words? Congressman, I've asked and answered your question. Why won't you read the words aloud? I've asked and answered your question, Congressman. If you'd like to read the words, you're welcome to. Well, you were ashamed to read them out loud, and you didn't deliver those words to the person the president asked you to. President Swalwell. I think that's the only time that that guy's going to hear that for a very long time. That was fun. Telling him, you know, read these words, do this, do that. What, what an embarrassment. The embarrassment here is all on the Democrat side. And they're acting like a bunch of, of total jerks today. All of them. No respect, no decency. And, and by acting the way that the Democrats were, they undermine the very institution that gives them their authority and their power in the first place. But there's another lesson here. We don't have to just allow the other side to constantly weaponize the process against us. We, we don't have to just be the ones that say, well, these are the rules and we always play by the rules exactly as written in, in the best spirit possible. So, you know, that's what we're going to do. You know, look, look at what the, the Trump administration, for example, did during the Mueller probe, gave them, uh, you know, n- no claims of executive privilege during the Mueller, during the Mueller probe, uh, you know, access to everything, whatever documents, all this stuff. Did that get them anything? Was there any good faith? That resulted from that from the Democrats? No. You give the Democrats something out of good faith and they just think that you're weak. They think that there's an opening now. So I like the way Lewandowski did it. You know? Go Leonidas style. Come and take it. I mean, you know, if they want to fight, give them a fight. And this should be the way that everybody who goes in front of Congress, they shouldn't just sit there and yes, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to talk over you. They're going to act in ways that are inappropriate, make them call the sergeant at arms or whatever in the Congress and arrest you. Let's see how that goes. All right, we got a whole lot more show. By the way, we, we can take some calls because we have uh, Bruce and Mark and producer John here in studio. So if you want to call in, we are live. If you would like to call in today, we can screen the calls. We can throw them on air. We can chat. 844-900-2825. 844-900-2825. Buck, we hope that is, 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 John, is that the right number? We don't give it out that often. It's like it's a secret number. It's like the formula for Coca-Cola. We don't, we don't share it. Uh, 844-900-2825. We will be right back. 
today about your favorite football team. I'm not sure. Patriots. Patriots. So you're pretty happy right now, right? Tom's a winner. Again, the problem we have here is we don't uh, follow procedure because if it gets in the way of a good story, we don't like it around here. Tom is a winner, huh? Tom Brady gets a shout out from Corey Lewandowski today. I, you know, I saw a video of Rob Gronkowski firing a minigun. <laughs> I gotta tell you, it made firing a minigun look like a lot of fun. Uh, it's making the rounds on social media. Uh, so I didn't know this would. Have, so every single line lit up right away uh, as soon as we asked for calls. So we'll start. Apparently, people want to call in because we got we got calls. Every line's lit. We got like seven lines in here. So uh, we will take some calls now and after the break, too, and then we'll get us some other things. First up, Matt in Ohio. Hey, Buck. Good to talk to you, bud. You too, man. Thanks for calling in. <clears throat> hey, I wanted to bring something up that I have not heard anybody since the election of President Trump bring up one of the best, biggest victories that he's been able to accomplish, and only he could do this. Uh, 2008. <clears throat> I was changing jobs, and my financial uh, advisor told me, I was telling him, it seems like we're coming down on hard times in 2008, and he says, yeah, but Matt, you have to understand that corporations right now are record levels cash rich, like never have ever been before. The problem is they're hanging on to their money, and since that year, the government and the Democrats have been trying to find ways to get the capitalists to release their money to energize the economy. And President Obama couldn't do it in two terms. We got 60 seconds, Matt, so we got to get to a point here. Okay, the point is President Trump was able to do it. He was able to do it by giving them a reason to invest back into the country. He made several maneuvers when he got elected to bring work back into the U.S. and keep work here in the U.S., and they had to reinvest to do it. I I do remember, Matt, thanks for calling in from Ohio, my friend. I do remember people saying at the end of the Obama, last couple years of the Obama administration, it was, you know, get ready for GDP to not be that great, get ready for... Uh, an economic future that's not going to be what it used to be. And then Trump comes in and it's like, oh, of course the economy's booming. Oh, it's the Obama economy now. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, we'll take some more calls. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Light them up. We're live. We'll be right back. All right, team lines lit. We're taking some calls tonight because we are live here in New York City on the Buck Sexton Show. We will get to uh, the... Possibility of a, of a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Hopefully not a war between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, we'll discuss that. Also, we got a whole lot more fallout from the uh, Kavanaugh uh, bombshell that blew back in the faces of those who thought it was going to take down the Supreme Court justice uh, or at least hurt, further hurt his reputation. We will talk about that. And then uh, we got some other interesting things here, too. Um, but first... Matt and Ohio, uh, wait, Charles, I'm sorry, Charles in Massachusetts, you're up next, sir, what's up? Yes, well, the reason I'm calling is because of uh, con- uh, a lot of concern about the situation, as you say, in the, in uh, uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and the fact is, is that uh, uh, if uh, we get involved with bombing raids in Iran, of course, we have uh, Russia and China supporting Iran, and the result is that uh, uh, if we get involved, uh, then uh, it'll just give the Democrats and everybody a chance uh, to uh, uh, oppose Trump, and it'll, it, it, it may very well uh, 
jeopardize his reelection. He, 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 in other words, if we get into a war, he's out, he's out. This is what I've been hearing. It's a well, it's a big it's a big risk for him. Look, it's a big risk for the American people first and foremost, right? We don't want another war. We've had enough of these wars. But beyond that, the president really broke with the GOP establishment on foreign policy that having a muscular foreign policy where people can't mess with America isn't the same thing as okay, this country's got problems. Let's go in, topple the topple a dictator and try to rebuild this country largely from the ground up. That's not the same thing. And Trump had a, a different approach, a more non-interventionist, which is not the same as an isolationist, a non-interventionist approach to uh, issues, particularly in the Middle East. So, yeah, if he gets drawn into a war, Charles, to your point, in Massachusetts, that would be, I'm sorry, in the Middle East, you're in Massachusetts, uh, that would be a... A, a betrayal in a sense of a, of a major campaign promise. So he can't do that. I mean, politically, it's a terrible idea and it's a bad idea just because it's a war that we shouldn't be fighting. So I hear you, man. Charles, thank you for calling in. Uh, Tim in Ohio, double Ohio tonight. What's going on, Tim? Hey, Brett, it's been, gosh, a couple months since I talked to you last. Well, great to have you back, my friend. Okay. <laughs> hey. Listen, uh, I got to tell you something. I got a few tips for Brad Pascal if he's listening out there, but we want to get the president elected, okay? So these are just my uh, my kind of key ideas to get it going, all right? Number one, I work for steel workers, but I work in manufacturing under metal, medical manufacturing. But steel workers I know that actually work for steel production, it's slow. And also... I'm a I'm a hobby farmer, but I know a lot of real farmers per se. And I'm saying, hey, what's the pulse, man? Are, are you guys pissed off because it's China deal? You're pissed off because the trade deals? And saying, you know what? We know Donald Trump's trying to do the right thing. We're giving him time. So here's the deal, though. He's got to go into I think on his next couple of trips. Go into Rust Belt areas and tell them we're trying to get this MCA pushed through, that everything's going to be better for everybody once MCA is pushed through. Flip this thing on the Democrats. Stop shaming the Democrats for not helping out the farmers and the steel workers and the manufacturers of this country. He's got to start flipping this thing and going into areas and focusing on them and why they're not putting it up, Nancy, putting it up for a vote. You know what I'm saying? I, I hear you, man. Thank you very much, Jim, for calling from Ohio. And, yes, I think that there has been a uh, – how do I put this? Uh, there, there's Well, there's certainly been a delusion on the left for a while and among the Democrats that the status quo on trade was good. That's not true. Trump is right that the status quo on trade with China specifically, but also with some other countries, was unacceptable, needed to be changed, needed to be updated. Um, or needed to be dramatically uh, shifted, as we see with China, where we have these ongoing now, uh, back, this back and forth on making um, uh, making a fair deal with China a necessity on their end by saying, okay, if you're going to play rough, we're going to play rough. And so I, I think that there is some some wisdom in Trump getting He's going to, though. I mean, this to, to Tim's point, he will be telling the American people and specifically farmers and steelworkers, people that have been directly affected by the tariffs, by the the trade war, which 
Call it a trade war seems a little extreme given how small a component of our economy it is and how limited it has been up to this point. But let's say the trade dispute that is playing out via tariffs. Uh, Trump will make the case that this was short-term pain for long-term gain and that ultimately he's doing what we always say we want politicians to do. We want politicians to lead. We want them to make tough choices that need to be made, right? That uh, That's what he's doing on China. And is he going to win? I hope so. But is doing something the right thing to do? Yeah, I think that's true as well. Uh, James in Boston. What's going on, James in Boston? Hello, Buck. Hey, buddy. Um, before it gets lost, Shields High. Shields High. <laughs> love, love the show. I'm, Thank uh, you. Listen five nights a week. Thank you, you so bet. much. My pleasure. Thank, thanks for taking the call. And I know that I know that uh, the audience is split on taking calls and not, but I appreciate you taking mine. Uh, taxes and two quick, very more two more quick points, if I may, if I can be, I'll be very efficient. Uh, I know you're a student of history. It's very clear. You're, uh, you're terrific. You're the, you're the future of talk radio, the present also, but definitely the future. Um, the income tax is not what we think it is. It dates back to 1862. It's an excise tax. You can uh, research it, if I may give a website, uh, losthorizons.com. Okay. And uh, if, you, if you'll do the research, you'll find out that it's only people uh, exercising federal privilege who owe federal income tax. Um, I don't want to get you know, overly complex, but for those that are interested, I, I hope you do it yourself, because I know you'd love to stop paying taxes, and you can do it lawfully. I've been studying this for three years. I've filed... I, I cannot recommend years. anybody try this. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I'm pretty sure that... Uh, oh, gosh, I can't remember the guy's name now. But uh, there was a there's a finance guy that I used to do some work with back the day at the Blaze, and his dad tried this, and they sent him to prison for a long time. So I would not recommend this. Well, well Buck, what I'm saying is, don't do it. Research it. Okay. If you research it. Fair enough. And you're comfortable, then you can do it. Two two more quick points. <laughs> don't be comfortable uh, with it, is what I'm telling you. <laughs> but go ahead. I'll be I'll be I'll be real fast. Uh, I first uh, interacted with you on Facebook, and I'm the guy that. Yes, can correct your celiac. I won't go any further, but I can do that. All righty. And last point. And last point. Uh, and I've been. Doing, I've had the tools. I, I, this is what I. This is my mission in life: is helping people heal. Last point is the Second Amendment. Uh, talk to some of your friends who've commanded troops in the military. If the government's coming after us, they're not going to come with M, uh, with M4s. They're going to come with Abrams. They're going to come with uh, Apache helicopters, A10s. Uh, so the, the the right to bear arms, we would need to turn back tyranny. We'd need stinger missiles. We'd need javelin missiles. Uh, I'm not sure that's true either. But, James, I do appreciate your kind words about the show, and thanks very much for calling in. Um, all right. You know, we take, we, we, we open up the lines. Uh, if he could cure celiac disease, he should be a billionaire. And if we need stinger missiles, I need to know why we can't pacify Afghanistan. I don't. I mean, they have like a hundred Stinger missiles that don't work anymore because the batteries are dead. But uh, you know, yeah, I don't know. Should we do one more? Should we do? Uh, you know what? I think we're gonna get back to the show. <laughs> I think we're gonna go back to uh, to the actual radio show here. So, uh, team, when we come back, let's discuss where these where the latest is with the New York Times uh, debacle, and then also we'll get into some of the uh, Iran versus Saudi Arabia situation. So, stay with me. We'll be right back. 
I think this is sort of ground zero for why so many people mistrust the media, why the New York Times has the nickname for New York Slimes with many people in conservative circles. Um, the Times actually had to run an editor's note following up. How did this vital fact get left out? Okay, thank you so much for the question. I, we're eager to clear the air on this. First of all, there was no desire Very to withhold eager. important information from our readers. We have all of it in the book, and the essay is an adaptation of the book um, that, of course, we had to edit for uh, length and clarity. Um, the, the thrust of the essay was about, probably a bad word choice, the point of the essay was about Deborah Ramirez, uh, a woman who had gone to college with Justice Kavanaugh and had this uh, experience where she alleged that he exposed himself to her and it was a very troubling event and we lay out all the reasons why that was not just the moment itself but the experience she was having at Yale being very difficult within that we talked about this new as yet unreported allegation because we thought it was germane it was a similar type of situation to the Ramirez one during the editing process there was an oversight and this key this key detail about the fact that the woman herself has told friends she doesn't remember it and has not wanted to talk about it got cut and it was an oversight, and the Times adjusted it, and uh, we're very sorry that it happened. Eh, not buying it. That is bull. That is not something that you or I should believe for one second, my friends. First of all, if it was an oversight, why did it take them over 24 hours after it was published to add that editor's note? If it was just, If it just got cut in the normal editing process, first of all, It takes a very special kind of journalist to think that the way to enhance your journalistic integrity when it has been called into question is to say, oh, it was my editor's fault. Oh, really? It was the editor's fault. That's very interesting Uh, because it wasn't a little detail. This wasn't a spelling error. This wasn't um, a a typo that was a that was a naughty word by accident or something. You know, that can happen. That then that can be the editor's fault, right? But this was an absolutely critical, essential detail that undermined the entire point of the article, which was that, oh, yeah, we corroborated Deborah Ramirez's allegations against Kavanaugh. And oh, by the way, There's this other allegation that seems very similar. And this other allegation added to the Debbie Ramirez allegation, you know, that they all remember, they always want multiple accusers because multiple accusers feels, at least to the public, like, well, there must be some truth to this now, even though with Kavanaugh, there were three accusers and they were all they were all wrong. They were not telling true stories. Different degrees of crazy in terms of the details, the lack of details, the um lack of corroboration and different degrees of outlandish, but none of them had credible stories. The three main accusers against Kavanaugh. And oh, remember, it wasn't just three accusers. There was also the uh, the Kavanaugh raped a woman in a boat in Rhode Island accuser that came forward to the Senate. You didn't hear about her. You know why? Because even Senate Democrats knew that's going to be tough because he's never been to Rhode Island at that point in his life. So if we can't put him in the state, if he can say definitively, I've never been in the state of Rhode Island uh, up to the point when this allegedly happened, you know, you know, I, I have never been to Montana. So it's pretty easy for me to prove that, like, I've never killed anybody in Montana. But there were other people. 
did, did, did she have a right to be believed? The woman who claimed that she was raped in a boat in Rhode Island? Did she have a right to be believed? No, she did not. She had a right to be told you're lying. Go away. And that's what happened. So remember that there is such a thing as entirely not credible and malicious. And oh, by the way, there can be legal penalties for that. If you swear under oath, if you swear out a statement against somebody to the police. And those legal penalties should be enforced. Perhaps that's a little further down the line here in the conversation. Let's get back into the New York Times debacle. Uh, So they today tried to uh, double down. They uh, were not not backing. I guess they feel like they have no choice. I mean, the New York Times, if you are paying attention and you're and you're not a leftist who believes that anything that advances the cause of the left is inherently justified. Then you find yourself saying the New York Times cannot be trusted on politically sensitive issues. I mean, I trust the New York Times to tell me, you know, where I can get the best Reuben sandwich in New York City. I mean, the food stuff that they do is good. And I think they probably don't. I think they probably don't cheat on the weather, although heaven forbid we start talking about climate change. You know, there's there's some utility to the New York Times. Some of you are saying yes for the bottom of my bird or rabbit cage. I mean, there there are some things you can do with the New York Times. Where the politics don't really matter, but anything that is even remotely politically sensitive And that includes the arts, book review, you know, you name it. It is a left wing propaganda machine, full stop. And that was what you saw yesterday with the this claim of an oversight. Oh, in the editing process, we just happened to miss this absolutely essential detail. You know what else they seem to leave out of that essay, which comes up in the book? And by the way, we'll be joined by. Uh, Tiana Lowe, who's uh, really an up and coming star reporter over at the writer over at the Washington Examiner. Um, y- you know what? Uh, she's done research on this and, and she read through the whole book. So she'll join us to tell us what, what we need to know about the education of Brett Kavanaugh. Leland Kaiser. Uh, was the best friend of Christine Blasey Ford. And Leland Kaiser, according to this this book that just came out, and they didn't want to focus on this part of the story, but this is information. I believe this was already out there a bit. And and, and thank heavens, Molly Hemingway, who wrote her book bef- and Carrie Severino, who wrote their book before this one came out. They've already done all the research and they're the ones who are pointing this out. They're the ones who are pointing out when these unbelievable lapses in the liberal anti-Kavanaugh narrative, uh, you know, these unbelievable lapses and omissions of essential fact or fabrications even occur. At least Carrie and Molly are out there saying, nope, that's not what happened. Nope, that's not true. That's why they had to append that uh, editor's note. But Leland Kaiser had some, there's some very interesting things about her situation. One is that she has, has more recently come forward and said that she just did not believe does not believe that this happened. This is Christine Blasey Ford's best friend who was supposed to be at the party. Doesn't believe that it happened. And beyond that, and this maybe tells us even more, said that she was subject to the worst kinds of threats, intimidation, abuse in order to lie and back up Christine Blasey Ford. That's what the left was reduced to here, my friends. 
finding innocent people beyond Kavanaugh and saying, you better back up this woman who's either crazy or lying or else. Radicals have a habit, a habit of finding a way to justify anything that they want. You will probably be familiar, I'm sure, with the uh, Castro quote, within the revolution, everything against the revolution, nothing. And anytime in the Soviet Union, somebody was to become a target of the state, an enemy of the state, they would say that the person was a counter-revolutionary. And that's all you had to say. If you were a counter-revolutionary, then you were against the single most important purpose of life within the Soviet Union, which was the revolution itself. The workers' paradise that would come, the, the, the socialist Marxist utopia of the future. How could, you, how could anything be allowed to stand in the way of that? When radicals decide something is important enough, then they can justify absolutely anything. I bring this up just because I do not think it is a stretch at all when you see, when you think about how devoted to the cause of abortion and Roe v. Wade, many, uh, particularly many women of a certain age, uh, roughly you know the boomers and the Gen X and Gen Y, when you see how devoted to abortion they are, they believe it is sacred. They believe that they would enter a period of virtual enslavement as women if they did not have the right to terminate a pregnancy at any point during the nine months of a pregnancy, up to, up to and including the, the day of birth. So when you understand the radicalism behind the mentality, then, of course, someone could justify in their own head ruining a man's reputation, lying about someone, ridiculing him, destroying him in front of the entire country, in front of his own family. Sure, you may find that that's unsavory. It might make you uncomfortable. But if you're a true revolutionary, if you really believe that a fundamental woman's right is on the line as an abortion radical, what would you not be willing to do? What would you not be willing to say? We know it came out recently that Christine Blasey Ford's own lawyer said, that one of the reasons, now they would say, oh, it's just one of them, but one of the motivations was to protect Roe v. Wade. That's why, that's why she felt the need to step forward. So there were, there's no question that there was a, a political motivation. The, the only outstanding issue is, was that political motivation so powerful that it was used to wipe away any concern, any compunction, any hesitation at the most horrific and despicable character assassination of a good man that I think any of us can can think of. It was it was truly heinous what they tried to do and are still trying to do to Kavanaugh and the members of the Democrat Congress who are saying that they want to impeach Kavanaugh, that they want to have a new investigation. Even. They should be. Utterly ashamed of themselves, unfortunately, they uh, they are, I'm sure, not in the least ashamed of themselves because why the most important the most important thing to them is that there is a a symbolism here that if nothing else if you are in the 
Kavanaugh seat. If you're the person that the left decides is a threat to the agenda, you will go through hell. And even if you survive, you will be scarred for life by it. That's the message that has been sent here. Even though Kavanaugh sits on the Supreme Court, the message that I think Justice Roberts, for example, who also sits on the Supreme Court, pays very close attention to. He is a waffler. He is an institutionalist. He's somebody who does not want mean things to be said about him in the press and on law campuses all across the country. Don't think that the left gets nothing out of all of this. Sure, there's a kind of psychotic catharsis for them of just trying to destroy somebody they disagree with, but there's, it's more than that. They have sent a message, and the message will resonate. And as people consider the possibility of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat at some point, undetermined in the future, opening up, what has happened here with Kavanaugh, they will be willing to replay this, I think. They'll be willing to go at this again. Um, but to the, to the point about hardliners and revolutionaries being willing to do whatever it takes, because nothing can be more important than the revolution, I just bring you the, some of the additional information that has come to light now about these two writers who put out this book, at the New York, the New York Times writers that now are, are authors of this book, and uh, the formidable and, and wonderful Molly Hemingway is on the case once again. And uh, she writes the following. Robin Pograbin and Kate Kelly wrote the much-discussed and later-corrected essay in the New York Times. A new Atlantic-published adapted excerpt of the book attempts to resurrect Pograbin and Kelly's anti-Kavanaugh smears, but once again has a major error. In a section explaining why they believe the accusers, despite the lack of evidence, they write that their emotional reaction to the claims was that the claims rang true. But they get major facts wrong. This is from the book. Remember the book that the essay adaptation left out that they, um, that the woman has no memory of it according to her friends and has not gone on the record to say that this thing ever occurred. Not Ramirez, the other, you know, the other woman. Quote, using Martha's common sense test, the claims of Deborah Ramirez, while not proven by witnesses, also ring true to us. Ramirez, who was a Yale classmate of Kavanaugh, said he drunkenly thrust his blank at her during a party in their freshman year dormitory. The people who allegedly witnessed the event, Kavanaugh's friends, Kevin Genda, David Todd and David White, have kept mum about it. Kavanaugh has denied it. Hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting because it's not true. It's pretty important, isn't it? The implication here is that, well, Kavanaugh's friends who were there, they haven't said anything about it. The problem is there was the New Yorker article that was the first attempt, the first character assassination shot taken in Kavanaugh's direction on the Ramirez case, not the, uh, the Blasey Ford smear. But in that original New Yorker piece, remember by uh, Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer, this is what they wrote. So this is already out there and the record has been for a long time. Quote, one of the male classmates who Ramirez said egged on Kavanaugh denied any memory of the party. I quote, I don't think Brett would flash himself to Debbie or anyone else for that matter. Asked why he thought Ramirez was making the allegation up. He responded, I have no idea. The other male classmate who Ramirez said was involved in the incident commented, I have zero recollection. In a statement, two of those male classmates who Ramirez alleged were involved in the incident, the wife of a third male student 
uh, she said was involved, and one other classmate, Dan Murphy, disputed Ramirez's account of events. Quote, we were the people closest to Brett Kavanaugh during his first year at Yale. He was a roommate to some of us, and we spent a great deal of time with him, including in the dorm where this incident allegedly took place. Some of us were also friends with Debbie Ramirez during and after her time at Yale. We can say with confidence that if the incident Debbie alleges ever occurred, we would have seen or heard about it, and we did not. The behavior she describes would be completely out of character for Brett. In addition, some of us knew Debbie long after Yale, and she never described this incident until Brett's Supreme Court nomination was pending. Editors from The New Yorker uh, contacted some of us because we are the people who would know the truth, and we told them that we never saw or heard about this. Does that sound like keeping mum? How could this new book, this 10 months of thorough research from the New York Times writers, have have declared that that is the people around Brett, you know, his friends, they kept mum about this. They didn't keep mum. They said, no way, this is crap. Brett wouldn't do this. This didn't happen. We never heard about this. This is a lie. I mean, that's not exactly what they said, but that's what they're saying. Why would she lie? Well, that's why I started out with, well, because she's, what would we say? Uh, She's responding to a higher power here. Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is the revolution in this case. Roe v. Wade is all that really matters to people of a certain liberal mindset. Anything that would keep it would be justified. I think it's uh, what's even more unfair to Kavanaugh is I don't believe Kavanaugh is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I don't think he's going to be a part of that. I think Kavanaugh is much less of a doctrinaire right winger than many of the uh, the left, many on the left seem to just assume. But because he's not, uh, you know, one of the far left activist judges on the Supreme Court, he is a target. Isn't that a pretty big, though, the, the, that the friends kept mum? Isn't that a pretty big uh, error to have once again? Another error. And just as we see when they run these fake news stories that the, the media then has to retract, and we know uh, this is information that is left out or that they lie about that would be helpful to the pro-Kavanaugh cause. Once again, just like, oh, yeah, the woman that we claim that that this guy, uh, Max, whatever his name is, Oh, you want to hear about Max Steyer? Max Steyer is a good governance advocate. Here, here this guy is. We need business. We need nonprofits. We need universities. We need all these associations who care about a policy issue associated with government to take some piece of their advocacy and make it not about the policy, but make it about the execution and make it about building capacity in our government. Okay, so let me just jump in right us, there. Does anybody kid. think that a guy that spends his, spends his time talking about building capacity in our government is anything other than a, a liberal? <laughs> okay, can we, just, can we just get that out there right now? Guy's a lib, all right? Guy's a liberal. Start with that. Oh, uh, And he did defend the Clintons, and they left that, I mean, defend Bill Clinton, and they left that off the essay. Now, you might say, Buck, but these, these uh, errors, they would never do this on purpose because it would make them look bad. No, sometimes the smear only has to last a few days to have the intended effect. People will believe it anyway. You see this with Twitter all the time. Some some leftist in the media will say, oh, you know, 
There's video of Trump taking a bribe, and then he'll say, oh, no, sorry, that was, uh, that was somebody made that up on a blog. And the, the first tweet gets 50,000 retweets, and the second tweet gets five. Still feeds into the perception that Trump is corrupt. People will still think, oh, maybe that was true. I don't know. I didn't see the other thing. Folks, we know what they're doing to Kavanaugh. We figured it out. We've seen it coming all along. Nothing has changed. These people are radicals, and they're willing to completely cast aside any decency, any ethics, in order to destroy a man that that even the authors of this book said after college. And I don't even know if I have uh, the time to get into this, but after college, he was a okay. Here we go. Twenty. We have found that we corroborate these stories of Deborah Ramirez and Christine Blasey Ford. But in the 36 years since, Brett Kavanaugh has been a better man. Mm-hmm. You know, whether he realized the error of his ways, whether and he consciously reformed himself or he grew up and simply matured, he has been an exemplary judge. Everyone we talked to couldn't speak more highly of him on both sides of the aisle. And he actually has a much more nuanced view, um, kind of position on the court. He's not a right-wing ideologue either. He's actually an establishment conservative mm-hmm. who has promoted women on the court. So that's something okay, else we wanted so to get I, I want to draw. So what's more likely? That psychotic leftists in the media, which the media is full of psychotic leftists, have created this whole series of lies and propped up these lies about Kavanaugh who then without anyone without ever getting in trouble without ever having anybody say hey you can't do that when he was a you know a man in high school and college becomes an absolute exemplar of good behavior becomes the guy that you want coaching your daughter's basketball team living next door to you teaching Sunday school and is brilliant and is wildly successful What's more likely that he just randomly became that guy after being the crazy, grabby, wannabe rapist flasher man through high school and college or that these leftists are lying? Don't let the whole, oh, we're being fair to them. Libs do this in the media all the time. They throw out a little. This is the Jake Tapper maneuver. One, one real question and then 90 bits of prop, 90 questions of propaganda. But, oh, I asked a real question. Oh, yeah, sure. As an adult, he's been like the most amazing human being ever. But, you know, must have been that he he turned it all around after what he did in high school and college. Oh, wait, no, I have a different idea, Libs. You're lying about this man. Corroborated Ramirez, corroborated. They didn't corroborate crap. People are out of their minds. Out of their minds. But they cannot admit that they were wrong about him all along because they were willing to be bad people. Because they were so devoted to his destruction. And to admit that they're wrong now would be, you are bad people without any justification really whatsoever. As you can tell, the Kavanaugh thing pushes some buttons. It gets me upset because it's terrible. And the people in the media that were involved in this process, the Democrats involved in this process, are disgusting. I, I I don't disagree with them. They are disgusting. Eh. We'll get a slightly uh, less um, less buck point of view on this later on in the show. But I want to move on to Iran and Saudi Arabia. And, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other topics I want to talk about, too. I got a little fired up today. We will be right. See, this is what happens when I take calls. I lose my, I lose my sense of time and we, go, we lose. Yeah, no more calls for a while. We'll be right back. Mr. President, as you know, I have never engaged in hateful rhetoric against you 
or your family, and I never will. But you're offering our military assets to the dictator of Saudi Arabia to use as he sees fit is a betrayal of my brothers and sisters in uniform who are ready to give our lives for our country, not for the Islamist dictator of Saudi Arabia. And for you to think that you can pimp out our proud servicemen and women to the prince of Saudi Arabia is disgraceful. And it once again shows that you are unfit to serve as our commander-in-chief. You know, sometimes I think Tulsi uh, Gabbard is substantially less awful than the other Democrat candidates. Um, This is not one of those times. When did the president ever say that we were going to hand over troops to the dictator of Saudi Arabia to do with as he sees fit? I mean, this is just, this is hyperbolic garbage. This, This isn't reality. Here's what what should happen. Or well, here, here's a bit of of a uh, backstory. We'll spend more time on this. But the because I know we got to run to a break here in a second. What's happening in the Middle East right now is a war between Sunni and Shia Islam. It's playing out in many different Middle Eastern Muslim majority countries. It's playing out in Syria, in Iraq, uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and it's playing out in Yemen. It's playing out in you know, name a major player in the region. There are issues between Sunni and Shia. Uh, and this goes back for, to say centuries doesn't even cover it, goes back for, oh, going on 1,500 years now since the original Sunni-Shia split. We, and the Trump administration, I hope, is going to take this approach, we care about this insofar as we do not want this to be our problem. This is not our fight. We do not want to get involved. But we also don't want the Iranians to be able to bring the global economy to not a screeching halt, but to really put a a dent in it by attacking oil supplies. And that's a concern. What should we do about that then? How do we balance this out? I will get into some of those specifics and some thoughts on the way forward and the strategy here between Iran and Saudi Arabia in just a moment. We need to have a conversation uh, as a country and as a Congress about whether or not this is an attack um, so directly relevant to America's interest as to justify military action. Diplomatic action is what's called for first, and our president should come to Congress and make that case if he is determined that this is what calls for military action. And we have to be Uh, very cautious about the way that we move forward. And I think that's why it's important for Congress to be able to investigate and take the lead on whether it makes sense for us to engage. Uh, It's really important for us to remember this is uh, a war. Our intelligence is war uh, war tainted um, towards Iran. To take military advice from Ilhan Omar, I'll start there. I don't think I'm going to listen to what she thinks is the right move here. Um, If I want to know how America is bad and we do all the bad things in the world, well, then I'll listen to Ilhan Omar. And then we also had uh, a Democrat there. Was it Chris Coons? You need to have a conversation as a country. Yeah, dude, that's right. That's what we're doing. We're having a conversation as a country. I think conversation is actually much more straightforward than Democrats want to accept that it is. We don't want a war with Iran. That Now, we don't want a war with a lot of people, right? Now, what I mean by this is, you know, we don't want a war with North Korea either. 
But if North Korea blows a couple of you know U.S. airliners out of the sky or something, or if North Korea attacks U.S. interests in it, well, then we got a war with North Korea. Right? It doesn't to say we don't want a war with someone doesn't mean that. Well, now they now they have uh, you know an open field. It's open season on America because we said we don't want a war with that country. This is all about the choice of whether or not to fight a war. The choice of whether we want to start what is going to be a military conflict that could have unintended consequences, take us much further down the road of nation building than we would ever want to go again, and all the rest of it. The conversation right now that uh, Senator Coons is saying we should have, I would offer that we are having it, and, and here's where I come down on this. If the the Saudis are, and of course we're going to be helping them, other allies are going to be helping them make sure that they have this lined up. It looks like they were cruise missiles. In fact, I saw a report today that there were cruise missile components that were found and that the Houthi militias don't have that capability. Oh, wait, maybe it's a bad thing that the Obama deal allowed Iran to continue testing uh, missiles, short-range missiles, right? Maybe that was a bad thing that it didn't touch the conventional missile program. But anyway, uh, the Iranians pretending to be the Houthis, or uh, however you want to you want to frame it, attack Saudi Arabia. Guess what? Saudi Arabia has been buying billions and billions of dollars of military hardware for some time. I remember there was a few months ago people said, "Oh, we can't sell the Saudis more munitions." We, you know, and Congress wanted to stop, you know, the Democrats and, and I think Rand Paul was in there, too, probably because I don't always agree with Senator Paul. I like him on some stuff. He would actually, I think, be a pretty good president because he just wouldn't ruin things. And that's really all you have to do these days for a lot of these jobs. Just don't ruin, you know, just don't ruin everything. And even if you try to ruin everything like de Blasio is doing here in New York, it's still pretty hard to ruin everything. And I think that the do no harm approach he is a doctor, after all, that Senator Rand Paul has. Uh, that that would put us in good stead if you're present. But anyway, as to what we should do here, we've been selling the Saudis all these uh, very sophisticated weapon systems. We help them maintain and train on these weapon systems. Guess what? Maybe the Saudis need to tell the Iranians back off with more than just words. And could this, you know, spiral into a broader conflict or whatever? Yeah, of course. But I got to tell you this, what would our response be if we thought that the Iranians had just blown up a couple of uh, U.S. oil refineries? Right. What would we would we sit there and be like, well, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Of course, we would we would respond militarily and we absolutely should. The Saudis, as far as I'm concerned, should absolutely respond militarily to Iranian aggression. It should be proportionate. It should be within the. You know, within what would be understood as punitive action as opposed to right. I mean, if if they if they fire on some Iranian missile ships or something and they take them out. That's saying, hey, don't fire missiles into our refineries. If they start lobbing missiles into the center of Tehran, well, that's obviously a different situation. So this stuff happens, right? We, We fired missiles at Syria and we are not at war with Syria. These things do occur. I think that we overcomplicate this by assuming that America has to be the one that does the strike. I I think it would be a mistake if we did it. Why? We weren't attacked. 
an ally that is fully, you know, it's one thing if an ally's attack that can't defend itself. And now we get into the whole discussion about Kuwait and Saddam's invasion. And then we had that huge coalition because, you know, we wanted that, you know, we wanted to make sure we kept those Middle Eastern oil supplies going. We can be a little more laissez-faire about geopolitics in the Middle East now, specifically because of fracking and natural gas and America's energy producers who, despite all the nonsense they have been subjected to, uh, politically speaking, and during the Obama administration, all the efforts to make it even harder for... Anyway, they we become an energy superpower. That really matters. That's why we can sit here and say, all right, maybe the Saudis do something, maybe they don't. But... The Democrats want to make this sound like Trump is a warmonger. Oh, he's trying to draw us into another war. Uh, You know, we don't have Bolton as a national security advisor. I think his influence on this president was dramatically overstated anyway. But you would assume that that means there's one less hawkish vote, so to speak, not really a vote, just an advisory role, but in the White House. We're doing something here and the Iranians are clearly feeling the heat. And one of the ways that if you are a despotic and sclerotic autocracy, one of the things that you do is, okay, well, our economy's going, uh, you know, going down the tubes. Let's lash out. Let's start some conflict with someone. So that that's a possibility here. We shouldn't always assume that the Iranians approach everything with a strategy worthy of of uh, Talleyrand or Metternich or, you know, whoever great geostrategists of their era. Um, they're not geniuses on this stuff. They're very, they're actually quite thuggish, the, the Iranian Guardian Council, the people that make the real decisions, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. They respond to force and they use force. That's pretty much where you start with them. Um, in this case, we've been using economic sanctions for a long time uh, and we want to continue doing so. I think the Trump administration's approach by and large is correct here. I would hope that Trump and you know what? I'm I'm confident that he's not going to get drawn into. I can't say I'm sure. And as you know, I don't do future. I don't predict anything. I mean, I make I make predictions for fun, but I don't tell you that I can predict anything. Um, But I think that it is likely that if anything happens here, it'll be the Saudis that do it. And that will be up to the Saudis. You know, there have been other wars in the Middle East that we were not involved in, plenty of them. And life went on just fine here in America. The Saudis and the Iranians want to want to duke it out a little bit. We've already sold the Saudis very advanced systems. The Saudis are a very wealthy country. They want to fight it out with the Iranians, you know, mano a mano. That's not our fight. And I think that we have clarity on that. I think that Trump has clarity on that as well. So we'll see if there's any further escalation here. It could come any day. We'll keep watching the story. We'll be right back. So, team, I often have people on the show where uh, I'm going to talk to them about the book that they've written, and I've read it. I didn't have time to read this Education of Brett Kavanaugh book yet. In fact, I don't even have a copy. I don't know if it's out. Maybe it's out today. But I want to bring on somebody who, one, has been following the Kavanaugh story all along from D.C. and also has, in fact, read this latest uh, Kavanaugh screed. We're joined now by Tiana Lowe. She is a commentary writer at the Washington Examiner. Tiana, how's life down in the swamp? You know, it's 
gross and grody as always, but that's what keeps it interesting. Fantastic. Tell me about this book. What is? What are some of the biggest takeaways of somebody who read cover to cover every page of this New York Times, I guess two New York Times writers that put this education of Brett Kavanaugh together? What are the big takeaways? What really happens in this book? So from just a writing perspective, it's a bit of a frustrating book because there's no index the way that the story is told is extremely confusing, so it's hard to figure out what exactly the sourcing on each claim is. But I went through, and my first read of the book was trying to figure out, you know, all the hoopla over the weekend was that now apparently seven people corroborate this Debbie Ramirez story. And all we heard about was that if seven people corroborate it, then it must be true. I went through each of the seven, and it is as thinly sourced as the original New Yorker story was last year. So of the seven, only one person claims to have heard that Kavanaugh was the person in the story about Ramirez at the time. And even then, this witness, Kenna Pold, he only heard about it from someone who he says claimed to be at the party. But that person's never come forward. And four people who were at the party at the time... Uh, issued a statement last year that they deny this ever happening at the party. So the Ramirez thing, it's a bust. Then we have this Max Steyer allegation. As you know, uh, Max Steyer is a Clinton attorney who defended uh, President Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, he went to the FBI, but not Chairman Chuck Grassley of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, like, three days before uh, the Kavanaugh confirmation, not even the hearing, claiming that he had seen Kavanaugh expose himself to uh, a female student while he was at Yale. The kicker is that the woman at the center of this story reportedly denies that this ever happened. So she refused to speak about this to the book, but she had multiple friends who said that she had always denied the story ever happening. And then that brings us to the third story, and that's about Christine Blasey Ford. As always, that was the most troubling allegation from the get-go, just both on the severity of the context, and also that Christine Blasey Ford seemed fairly sympathetic last year. But this book kind of has her story falling apart. So it always made sense that the other boys at the party who were going to be witnesses would uh, deny the story if they were all friends with Kavanaugh. But her friend Leland Kaiser was there. And as you may recall, last year she just said, I don't remember this party ever happening. But now she's doubled down on it and said, not only do I not remember this party happening, but if she's saying that I'm the one who drove her there and back, it sounds she has no confidence in the story. So basically all three of these allegations have kind of fallen apart. And that doesn't mean that I'm not accusing any of these three women of lying, but the evidence is non-existent and in some cases exculpatory. What do you think these New York Times writers then were, what do they think they're adding to our our knowledge of this case, which was already very, very publicly and, and thoroughly adjudicated with the Senate hearings and people, the entire country was fixated on this for weeks. What what as somebody who's read through the whole thing, what do they think they're adding to this discussion with this new book? So for them personally, I'm not going to try and impugn their motives because they do make note that Kavanaugh in his professional career has had, a, had, has had unimpeachable character. They go through great lengths, I think, in their minds, to be fair. I think they thought that they could contextualize the story, which is only strange because that's how we wound up with that really weird New York Times piece where it was about how Debbie Ramirez was so underprivileged because all she had was an above-ground swimming pool in southern Connecticut. 
I'm not really sure if the New York Times writers have ever actually met an underprivileged person, but they usually don't have access to above-ground swimming pools only. Um, but on a meta sense, I think the people who have clung to this story, I mean, think about it. Since Clarence Thomas, I don't think that the left recognizes a single Republican appointee to the Supreme Court as legitimate, except for Justice Alito. Think about it. Clarence Thomas, abuser. John Roberts, appointed by a president who stole his election with Bush v. Gore. Um, Neil Gorsuch stole Merrick Garland's seat, and now Brett Kavanaugh, obviously serial sexual assaulter. Right, so, which, is, which is more likely with Occam's razor, that every single Republican Supreme Court appointee, as you said, but one, is illegitimate or the Democrats are crazy? I mean, you don't have to answer that, but I'm asking the question. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think that, and, and again, I'm not, you know, this, it, the funny thing about the Kavanaugh story in particular, you know, Buck, I'm from L.A. Most of my friends were Hillary voters, and I have very civil discussions with them. They're perfectly fine for the most part with our political differences. This was the first issue where I heard from friends who I had never talked to about politics, where they said, is this the new normal? Will my brother get accused 20 years down the line of some chick that, you know, he raped her because he makes it into the public eye somehow? And again, if you look at the statistics, only 2 to 10% of all rape allegations are false. So this is not a widespread problem on average. Well, 10 percent, though, for example, would be higher than any other felony crime. So Yeah, but 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 the left is making it a problem. The left is making it a problem by trying to publicly ruin and destroy a man with zero evidence. And what do you think about the the credibly? I mean, this is something that uh, we talked a bit about yesterday on the show. But this phrase has seeped into the conversation, credibly accused. Uh, if if credibly accused merely means that a woman sounds believable in her tone and demeanor when making an allegation, which I suppose is the case with Blasey Ford, I can't even say it's the case with the other two because we didn't see their testimony. That seems to completely upend evidentiary standards and corroboration for every other allegation of criminal or even just illicit conduct. For, yeah, I think that's exactly true. I mean, I think that it's fair to say her allegation was compelling, but it's not credible. I mean, I, I think that most people, most people, when the politics are pushed aside, can kind of agree that for someone like a Harvey Weinstein, where it is more likely than he is, where he is more likely than not guilty of what he is accused of, he deserves to suffer social and professional consequences. I think we saw this with Al Franken. I think we saw this with Roy Moore. With Kavanaugh, the thing is, the evidence didn't even come close to reaching that preponderance standard. And I think that if he were completely a political figure, everyone would understand that the West was not based on the principle of believe all women. It was based on the principle of you have the right to voice your accusation, and we will evaluate it based on the evidence that we can find. And again, this does not mean that Christine Blasey Ford deserves to be harassed, be sent death threats. She deserves to be able to go back to her old life. She voiced her piece. It wasn't proven. Let's move on. But it's the left that wants to relitigate this, and that's why we're back in the circus. Tiana Lowe, she read the book, so you don't have to, folks. But uh, she's at the Washington Examiner. She's a commentary writer there. Follow her on Twitter at Tiana Lowe. Tiana, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Have a nice day. All right, team, we'll be right back. Team, I want to tell you about a back and forth that I have with 
the uh, with the city government here in, in New York. And, and this is a, a tale of bureaucracy, of sloth, of ridiculousness. Uh, This is, for me now, turning into an education in and of itself. I thought maybe I would be having this kind of uh, conversation uh, with you about me getting my, me getting a uh, handgun permit in New York City, which I have not yet started that process, but I am, I am very much planning on starting that process. So I haven't yet gotten any word about that. Um, I, well, because I haven't started it. But I thought that we would be talking about, oh, my gosh, they make me jump through all these hoops. They hate the Second Amendment here, and, and that's going to happen. So we'll, I'll give you all those trials and tribulations, and you can, you can just laugh at how ridiculous it is in New York City for all that. Uh, but I mentioned before that I, I've had a little bit of, of noise issue in my new home. I, I live in what is now, it's, it looks like something out of Tokyo. It's a very new building uh, or something out of Hong Kong. You know, it's just, it's just brand new. It's very tall, zero character or anything like that. And I used to be somebody who was like, oh, wow, I like, a bil- I like to live in buildings down in the village where there are red bricks that have just enough space in them for various you know, furry uh, small creatures and things to get in and out of the apartment. You know, that was my... That was my old standard of I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a city dog. This is just what I deal with. But now this time around, I'm living in this uh, this brand new building. And and it's it's not I will say it's not not a, an issue with the building yet. Um, it's an issue with the buildings around it, some of which are, are very old. And I'm kind of high up. And so there are these these uh, various HVAC systems. They look like you know giant fans, essentially fans that are you know look like they're like eight or ten feet across, that are on the tops of these city buildings, and some of these buildings are twenty or thirty stories tall, and they have these HVAC systems, and it just you know makes all this noise. Okay, so I figure I I figured out one of them had a broken belt, and I got I helped them. I'm a good neighbor. I helped them figure out that it was a broken belt, and we got that fixed. It was making a very loud screech noise. But then there's another one. Uh, there's another one that just happens to be just big and loud. And there are, in fact, and I know I'm a little bit of a persnickety neighbor, but there are noise ordinances. And and I, I was curious. So I called the department. <laughs> I know this is crazy. I called the Department of Environmental Protection in New York City, John, believe it or not, to come and take a noise violation reading. They have these... These uh, noiseometers, I don't know what they're really called. They, they read the de- or they, they measure the decibels. I like noiseometer, but it's, 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 there's some other name for it. And they show up with a little noiseometer. And it's a little bit like, you know, Egon from Ghostbusters. Like he kind of waves this thing around and, you know, Egon, your mucus. You know, I mean, that, that's, that, that's the, the, the vibe you get. The guy shows up, very nice fellow, and they take the reading in the apartment. And sure enough, I'm not crazy, which is always good to know. The ambient noise created by this fan system is so loud that inside my apartment currently is a, it is a noise violation under city code. Uh, so I think to myself, well, okay, well, one, I'm not crazy. That's nice. And then two, I got to figure out a way to deal with this now because I don't want to walk around all day, you know, oh, I'm going to make some eggs or I'm going to, I'm going to try to like write my book or something. I hear, I mean, around the whole, that's what it sounds like the whole, you know, I, all day, 24 hours a day. 
And you could say, Buck, how could you not know? Sometimes the fan goes off, go off for 20, 30, 40 minutes at a time, and it always comes back on. Obviously, I saw this apartment when the fan wasn't on, right? So I walked in. I'm like, oh, it's, it's so quiet. I love it. I got a little bit of a view. It's nice. Now I go in there. I'm like, oh, I'm back in my apartment. Boom. You know, that's the noise, okay? And, and so it's, I'm trying to make it not like the telltale hard here where the noise drives me completely insane. And, you know, but that's, a, that's a whole other thing. Is that with, you know, gently tapping, tapping at my chamber door or whatever? Is that the telltale hard or did I mix mix? Both Edgar Allan Poe, right? Oh, that was the, was that the crow was I getting? Or the raven? The raven, the crow. Oh my gosh, Buck. Go back and read your literature. So I was close though. Um, yeah. So uh, the cask of Amontillado. I remember this stuff. This stuff was great. Well, I was back in like junior high. So anyway, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out what do I do here? I've got the city, I got the city inspector. I got Egon. We'll call him Egon because he's got the noiseometer. Which, you know, it looks kind of like a Ghostbuster thing, although not quite as cool. And he takes a reading. He's like, yeah, man, this is a this is a violation. This is a and it's it's about it's 20 percent higher than it's supposed to be. That, that that's and that's the legal limit for the noise. You can imagine how loud it is. So I'm not and I'm not being a big baby about this. It's really annoying. So so I, I go to my my building and I say, hey, you know, can I just move to the other side of the building? You know, can I can I move to the other side of the building? And you've got empty apartments. Let me take one of those. And they say, look. So far, and we, we may have to have a whole conversation about the building coming up here, if they're reasonable or not. So far, it seems like they may be reasonable. They may let me move to the other side of the building, and uh, they may. We'll see. Because there's no reason they shouldn't. I'm moving the exact same cost or you know, within $20 or something, the same cost apartment, the whole thing. Um, but they said, can we have a copy? You know, Can you give us a copy of the report? And I said, oh, well, how, how hard can that be? This guy was just in my apartment. He works for the city. The report's probably about, you know, eight lines long. Sure. You know what I found out today, John, about the report? Uh, I need to file a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request to get this thing. I'm talking to the city government on the phone. I was like, you guys are kidding, right? Like, that's a joke. You're, you're, you're sitting in front of a computer that has information on it that is public information, but you, th- that is information about my home that I need but you will not give it to me absent a FOIA request. What sense does that? It, it's, it is absolutely public. But or, you know, it's, it's essentially I think they call it a there's some term for it, but it's, it's a it's a city FOIA request. It's an official records request. And you might say, well, Buck, OK, maybe it's not that bad. No, no, it is that bad. It takes 14 days for them to even respond whether or not I can get the records. And then there's a review period. I'm going to get this stupid record in like three to six months. And I'm asking them, like, how is this possible? How does anyone, how does anyone who has ever written, uh, you know, city statutes or, or the, the, you know, the laws and by, bylaws and all that stuff for the city of New York, how could anyone think this is a good idea? But then I realized, oh, I know what this is. The, they just make it as difficult as possible so that people go away. They just make it as hard. And, oh, and then there's another little wrinkle here. They're not even sure what will be contained in the report because we could not tell necessarily what the source of the noise was on the first visit by Egon. So I'm, ha- I'm supposed to have Egon or someone who is like Egon come back for a second visit to ensure that we know where the noise is coming from, which might mean that then there has to be a second FOIA request which might take another two weeks of review and then three months of processing. 
I'm losing my mind over here. How is this possible? What's the point of having a noise ordinance when, when you, you know, they're, they're in violation, there's a problem, and I, my, my recourse is to sit around and wait for lazy city employees to click on a few things and send me? It's going to take months. I know city employees. They are overwhelmingly a very, very, I worked for the city. They're a lazy bunch. Not all of them, but most of them. And here we go. This is this is what we this is what we have all these people their job. Their the, the Department of Environmental Protection is a whole unit just to, just to this because people completely you know they have to vacate their homes because noise in the cities is a constant problem. Which is my the the cost of living here and the noise are the two things that I wish I could change. Other than that, I actually kind of like it here. But the cost of living is out of control and the noise is out of control. But you know what this was, and I'm sharing this with you one just so you can laugh at me because this is what you get for living in New York City. But two. It's also just a reminder of like this. This is why you don't want the government in charge of things. Every person I spoke to today who worked for the city of New York was like, yeah, I agree. This is stupid. This is a dumb system. I should be able to just print this off and and send it to you. Or I should be able to just email this to you. Why not? You're definitely entitled to it. Oh, no, but let's let's delay it by weeks, maybe months and see, you know, and see then how we feel about this. It's just madness. It's just madness. But this is why you don't want the government in charge of your life. This is why the, a government of enumerated powers, a government that has to respect certain basic rights and, and, and is not able to infringe on them. And there's a, there's a reason why we have the system we do. It's because government is sloth and inefficiency and stupidity and nobody cares. Nobody cares that Papa Buck can't get any sleep. Nobody cares. This saga will continue, my friends. So there is a squeaker of an election right now. It's going on in Israel. It is for the big job. Is Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi, going to come out the victor? Or what are the possibilities here? What could happen? i got my main man, David Efoun, on the line now. He is the editor-in-chief of the Algaminer. And he's going to tell us what's happening. David, great to have you back. Always a pleasure, Buck. All right, man. To just, just bring us up to speed, what is going on here? Well, look, the only thing we have right now are exit polls. Okay, so we don't have a final result until late at night, which uh, probably be, you know, when everyone wakes up here in America tomorrow morning, we'll, we'll see what the final results are. Uh, the exit polls, you know, give us some idea, but uh, notoriously and in the past, they have not been precise. They usually take a couple of seats off of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party, um, largely because there are absentee ballots, including from and ballots from soldiers and others that are not necessarily taken into account uh, with the exit polls, and they usually vote more for the right wing. In the meantime, you've got these exit polls that show a dead heat, almost a dead heat, um, and they don't show Netanyahu with his decisive and natural coalition. Uh, which he'd be able to form. Now, it doesn't mean that that uh, he's lost a lot of support from last time, because when the calculations were made last time, there was they included the party of Avigdor Lieberman, who's traditionally seen as part of the right-wing bloc. That's Yisrael Beitenu. Uh, but now he's sort of positioned himself as a kingmaker, and he's actually come out ahead, moving from five seats to eight seats as a result of this election. He's basically dragged the whole country through the system again 
for some gains for some uh, gains for his own party. And uh, the gambit seems to have played off, to be honest. So w- what do you expect would have if BB and we've just gotten used to I mean, how many how many years now has Netanyahu been been running the show? Uh, it's it's been quite a while. So I think Americans, yeah, yeah. longest serving prime minister. Yeah, longest serving prime minister. So I think Americans like, well, you know, BB BB understands who the bad guys are in the Middle East. He's an ally of the United States, and you know, we're we're we've gotten comfortable with him in that spot because he's been in it for a long time, and things have been relatively quiet in Israel. Certain to what was certainly compared to what was going on in the early two thousands. Uh, if BB were to, you know, I know we don't know yet, and you know it's very, very tight. If BB were to lose, what would change in Israel, and what might change in the U.S. relationship with Israel? So the folks here across the country, you know, how could this affect things that we care about here? But first, start with on the Israeli side. What might be different? Well, look, the, the, there's no question that Netanyahu is a, is an incredibly competent leader on a whole host of levels, and you know his leadership has really brought. Israel to the international stage as as a power player, you know, as, a, as a very significant power player, both economically and politically and militarily. And, you know, that's something that whatever happens, he's going to be remembered for by the Israelis. And it's why, you know, despite all the shenanigans and the critique and, and the corruption investigations and everything else that's going on there, um, the Israelis still like him, because he's good at the job. He's really, really, really good at the job. Now, his main competitors are the, the Blue and White Party. You know, even though, even if they are neck and neck, they have an even more unlikely pathway to forming a coalition, even though it's not clear what Netanyahu's pathway will be. Their pathway will be even harder. So, it's, it, you know, even if it's a tie, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that Bibi is out by any means. Um, but in terms of, of the, the, the substance, there isn't actually a great deal that divides them. Uh, it probably has a lot more to do with style. Uh, certainly, one thing is for sure, the left in um, the United States, for example, the Democratic Party or even the Obama administration, their views on the conflict in the Middle East are not shared at all by very many Israelis. I mean, their constituency, that sort of perspective and worldview is held by, you know, maybe, you know, five seats or five percent of the electorate, maybe even less. The Blue and White Party, which is Netanyahu's major competitor, holds similar views on negotiations with the Palestinians, on Iranian expansionism, on, you know, Israel's right to disputed territories in, in a lot of cases, and, you know, so certainly around the settlement blocks. So, you know, substantially, there isn't a great deal between them. The big difference is, you know, that we're talking about a political novice, right? Benny Gantz is a capable leader who led the, the Israeli military, but he's new to the world stage. You know, he has not negotiated with Vladimir Putin before, and, and he doesn't have a long-standing relationship with Trump or, or Bolsonaro in Brazil or Modi and the countries that, that, that Israel is building ties with to survive and to flourish and to grow. So that's been the center point of Netanyahu's campaign. He knows that that's his strength over his rival. And, uh, you know, it it remains to be seen how the newcomers are going to fare in that regard. How do you think uh, the Israelis right now are seeing the situation with Iran and Saudi Arabia? Are are the Israelis behind the scenes very supportive of Saudi? Or are they, you know, what do you think they're, 
the Netanyahu, obviously, who knows how long the Netanyahu government's going to be what it is right now, but let's assume it continues as is. What is the position of the Israeli government in the in response to something like this? I mean, who who would they, what would they like to see done? Look, there's no question now that, uh, you know, really historically, uh, you know, it's, it's historical in terms of how it's unfolded that the Israelis and the Saudis, and not just the Saudis, but the sort of more moderate Sunni axis, have been creeping closer and closer together um, over the last number of years, and that's sort of been precipitated by the threat from Iran, which is a, a shared threat. Now, the Israelis are under no illusions. They, they recognize that this is uh, an alliance of convenience, and uh, they're certainly skeptical about the long-term prospects. Having said that, they do view it as an opportunity, an opportunity to, to open up dialogue, to work together, and to, to you know soften the harsh nature of those, the historical harsh nature of that relationship. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be working together in terms of, uh, uh, you know, behind the scenes, whatever we're seeing uh, on, uh, uh, you know, in front of the, of the scenes, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Um, and uh, the Israelis will, will be, you know, working with intelligence in the Saudi community and, and uh, across the Middle East uh, the mutual and shared threat enemy uh, that looms large over the entire region is Iran, and whatever they can do together to, to stem that threat, um, they're going to be doing both covert and, and overt, and uh, you know, they'll be looking for opportunities to push the Iranians back wherever they can. The Algeminer, folks, the fastest-growing Jewish newspaper in America. Go to algeminer.com for all things going on in the, uh, in the realm of, of Israel and all things related to uh, the Jewish people and our friend David Ifunzi, editor-in-chief. David, always appreciate your expertise, my friend. Great to talk to you. Always a pleasure, bud. Team, we'll be right back. You know, I found out today, actually, I'm going to get to go to Nashville for the first time. Ooh, get a little Nashville time in for the Buckster. I've wanted to go for a long time. I feel like maybe I have a burgeoning country music career. I just don't know it yet. I'd have to learn to sing and play the guitar. Or maybe I would learn, uh, I was going to say steel drum. That's Caribbean. What's the, what's the, is it st- steel guitar? <laughs> Not steel drum. <laughs> that's a different, that's a different music genre, Buck. Uh, maybe I need to spend more time in Nashville so I know these things. But yes, indeed, I will be in, uh, at Politicon in Nashville, the 25th, 20, or the 26th and 27th in Nashville, Tennessee in October I found that out today, so that's exciting. So Nashville's getting crossed off the list, which is great. Austin is next. I really just need some some excuse. So somebody at KLBJ Austin needs to, you know, in the audience down there, needs to help me think of, a, of an excuse to get the powers that be to send me down to Austin. Nashville made it happen. Fort Wayne, Indiana's made it happen. Los Angeles and Orange County, and, you know, they've made it happen. Team Buck, Los Angeles. Team Buck, Orange County. Team Buck... Springfield, Illinois has made it happen. So I need an excuse to go down to Austin. That's what I've decided. i got to figure out what it is. got roll call in a moment. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for roll call. What is soft butter and warm toast? have to do with free like this i didn't come up with it what is this 
This doesn't even make any sense. I just realized this as we're airing this across the nation. I guess freedom is easy, like spreading soft butter on warm toast. Like soft butter on warm. So it's easy to spread freedom? I think it's yeah. difficult to spread freedom. I think we put a lot of work into this. That, that liner was before me. He's getting, he's getting a Christmas present this oh. year. I'm sorry, that didn't go on here. I said, you make it look easy. That's why it's Thank spreading you. like uh, That's why he's butter. getting a Christmas Do I get a Hanukkah gift? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Don't you get multiple Hanukkah gifts? Isn't eight. that how it works? Yeah. Wow. I think. I got to get on I Amazon. haven't gotten eight gifts since I was a I, kid, I got to get on like the Amazon you know, special deals section. Eight gifts? Eight gifts, yeah. Freedom Hut's not that big yet. Uh, Man, I understand. Gotta, yeah, we'll figure it out. So uh, <laughs> we'll get you a Hanukkah gift. So... Now that we have that, uh, Team Buck at iHeartRadio.com. That is the email address for us if you want to send us. But I also don't want people to stop using Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. So to that end, we're going to mix and match. And today we'll get into a little bit more of the Facebook messages. Because some of you really like that. Some of you don't. Here we go. Johan. Last night you brought up that some cops would be very happy to be the only ones allowed to carry. This is something I've been saying for a long time. I'm retired military and law enforcement, and I can say without a doubt that most in both organizations feel separate from the general population and will do what they're told to do, including forcible confiscation. Every dictator that has ever ruled and oppressed does only with the support of the police. With police being armed like the military and people's right to bear arms in jeopardy, only bad things can happen. Well, Johan, you're, you're taking it further than, uh, than than I was, but you're saying you're law enforcement and, and military uh, yourself or former law enforcement or military. So that certainly adds some some weight to your uh, your note here. But I, I can tell you that there are I have spoken to cops who just say, yeah, people want to have shotguns for home defense and for going sporting clay shooting. That's fine. But I've spoken to cops who are like, I don't want people having handguns and I don't want people having uh, semi-automatic rifles. I, I've talked to them. I, I, I'm not making this up. They're out there. So, you know, I've also spoken to other cops who volunteer their own time trying to train, conceal, you know, trying to do conceal carry class for people because they want more. They think that the more people who appreciate and and uh, utilize their Second Amendment rights, the better. So there's clearly I mean, there's a I'm just saying that there exists within law enforcement a mentality. I have no way of gauging which is the uh, which would be even the majority? I, I don't know. I would think that law enforcement nationally would be more in favor of the of an armed citizenry. But you know, you look at LAPD, NYPD. There are some major urban. I mean, the NYPD has about fifty thousand employees, over thirty thousand uh, armed and sworn law enforcement. So you know that that's a lot. So for those of you who are like, well, Buck, you know, out here in out here in Indiana, you know, law enforcement is far more favorable to the Second Amendment. That's probably true, but you also have far fewer cops. So, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I think it would be interesting if we could get some data on this one. Andrea uh, right? so there's a traditional Mongolian horn made of human thigh bone. Okay, guys, my trumpet broke. Who's willing to help a fella out? Uh Andrea, um, or is it Andrea? What do we go with? What's the go-to? I, t- I was talking to a friend recently, and I said Tara, and she said, no, it's Tara. And I'm like, do we really do we really correct Tara and Tara? I mean, isn't that... With that name, it's ridiculous. Right? Isn't that t- tomato, tomato? I mean, really? Andrea or Andrea, 
or Andrea could be a man or a woman. Really? You know, yeah, you've never had a heard of a male Andrea or Andrea? No. I feel like Andrea is the way a man. Andre, Andre, yes, like Andre Andre. the Giant. No. Really? I feel like I've heard a man be that have that name before. Well, rare. I've I met a man. I've met. uh, I've obviously there are men named Leslie. There are men named Ashley. Andrea Bocelli. I've met some. Up, uh, bam. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's producer John gave me. Maybe you're all. Head. Maybe you're going to get all eight Hanukkah presents this year. Maybe. Yes. You know, with with that kind of skill, we'll see. All right, back into uh, into the mix here. Richard uh, writes: The Democrats started the last uh, civil war. In your opinion, how long will it take this time? Well, Richard, I I don't. You know, look, I I certainly. I can't predict. I always tell you, I can't predict the future. No one can predict the future, but I, I don't think we're heading heading for that. I certainly would never. I would hope that we would never head for that again. It's it's almost difficult to read a, a history of the Civil War for me sometimes, or to to go back and dive into it, just because the the human carnage and just knowing these are all Americans and we're just oh, it was it's just horrifying. But then again, you read the history of the First World War, the Second, you know, war is horrifying. So maybe that's true across the board. Uh, James writes, Hey Buck, listen to Friday's show. I was surprised by the fact that no one has pointed out Beta O'Rourke, uh, Beta O'Rourke rather saying an AR-15 shot X people, an AR-15 shot no one. Ah, yes. Pointing out that this is a tool. Be safe, brother. Come on home with your shielder on it. Beta is a shield tosser if there ever was one. Yes. For those who have not been around the show long enough, we, we sometimes refer to people as a shield tosser. This was a a horrible insult. You know, this was like, you know, this was the equivalent of of a Yo Mama joke back in the day um, where the ancient Spartans, the Athenians, if somebody if somebody was being a coward, you called them a shield tosser because the armor that in uh, in phalanx warfare, the armor that hoplites, the heavily uh, the heavily uh, bronze clad foot soldiers of ancient Greece, ancient Macedonia. Uh, if you were going to run away, guess what? You had to toss. You had this big, heavy shield, so you'd throw your shield in the ground, and then you actually had a chance of maybe getting away. If you tried to run with your shield, you weren't going to get very far very fast. So that's why shield tosser is a term for coward from ancient Greece, and we use it here sometimes on the show. Is Beta a shield tosser? I wouldn't want him next to me in the phalanx, I can tell you that much. Yeah, I just like... I don't understand why people are stabbing me and, like, stabbing you right now. Because, like, if I just took out my guitar, maybe I could convince the Spartans, like, not to try to, like, take all of our stuff and enslave our women and children. Like, I could just, like, talk to them and they would understand. We could come together and unify. David, right? It's going to take a 1940s American military mentality to defeat a country like Iran that is culturally uh, behind the rest of the modernized world, we all know in today's political climate that is improbable. Look at the idiots that have been elected in this country. People actually vote for them. It's crazy. Take care, Buck. Well, David, thank you and uh, for writing in. And, um, yeah, I, look, I, I don't want a war with Iran. I don't want a war with Iran. I don't want us trying to clean up Iran's mess. I don't want us in charge. I do not want young men from you know Texas and New York and Florida and Iowa and Nebraska and California and you, ne- you know I, I don't want them walking around with uh, 
you know, armor plating on and carrying M4s and trying to make sure that a bunch of Iranian insurgents don't kill women and children and say, oh, look at the occupation here. I mean, just please, we've done it. No more. You know, there, there was zero gratitude from the Middle East, really, and very little, if any, gratitude from the rest of the world for us trying to make Iraq a better place. So just start with that. Afghanistan, yeah, there's some Afghans that appreciate us, but, you know, not that much. Not not enough. Not enough that it's worth doing this thing again, that's for sure. Uh, Kelvan writes, Buck, I'll try to keep it short, but expanding on the possibility of red flag laws overreaching and, manifest, overreaching and manifesting in various forms. My friend, who has a very generic name, had her house loan delayed enough. It might jeopardize her purchase because her name was the same as somebody on the no-fly list. Government overreach is like a vine and just grows until it takes over the whole house. Shields high from Anchorage. Nice. Up in uh, up in Anchorage, man. Good to talk to Team Buck Alaska. Haven't heard from you in a little while. Um, as to uh, your, your point about government messing up, yeah, there, there are no, there's nothing about government messing up that surprises me. You can expect, there's, there's no level of incompetence where you'd say, whoa, the government couldn't do that. I mean, the government is capable of any level of stupidity, really, because no one cares and there's really very little accountability. It's kind of a recurring theme here on the show. So, yes, could I, could I believe that somebody was caught up in a red flag law just because their name was similar? They had a, a similar, similarly spelled name to somebody else? I, I absolutely can believe that. I, it's not, not surprising to me in the least. Let's see what we have here. Tracy. Hey, Buck, I love your show. Tracy, I love your love of the show. Judge Kavanaugh was appointed to represent our laws and constitution. He should make it work for him now and sue the pants off the New York Times. Shields high, Tracy, in Mobile, Alabama. Not to be said mobile, like a mobile station. No, that's not right. Just in case, producer. Producer John, if you ever get stuck down there, and you happen to be the first car to arrive after a lethal robbery in which somebody is is shot and then you are picked up by the local sheriff and you only have one phone call and it is to your cousin Vinny i just want you to know how to produce uh, how to pronounce rather the name of the town you're in cuz that'll help you when the judge is like what is a is a ute you know then you're going to yeah, producer, you know exactly. At least, at least now, see, producer Mark, he's a youngin', so he doesn't know this movie. But thankfully, you're here this week helping out, and so I can make references to movies from the early 90s when producer Mark was probably neck deep in Power Rangers. Maybe. Early 90s? I was neck deep in some baby food. Oh, man. Wow. He just aged us again. All right. Fair enough. Terrence. Buck, great show as always, but I've got to call you out on a point from today's show. During your Bro Cuomo segment, you said people do hum with assault rifles. Just as you avoid undocumented and adhere to illegal because the language does matter, please keep a left in check and shoot down the fictitious term assault rifle. There's no such thing. Enough of the negativity. Keep up the great work. Shields high. Look, Terrence, I love that you love the show, and thank you for your your good faith uh, message here. But I got to tell you, man, I keep going through it. What am I going to say? There's a certain class of semi-automatic rifles that liberals will codify into law and say we're banning them. And it's not 
It's not all semi-automatic rifles because there are cosmetic feed. And you could say, but Buck, that's so stupid. And I say, yes, I know that's so stupid, but it's what happens. So how do I refer to this thing that they have created? You know, undocumented is a is a nonsense political uh, made up political term. It's not in any way a legal term. If they pass a law that says assault rifles are now banned and here's a list of 10 assault rifles. Those things are then legally classified as assault rifles, at least in that state or if it's federal, then at the federal level. That, that, that is the term, right? You know, we could say, oh, but they're actually they're actually, uh, you know, freedom pop pop toys. But which actually sounds kind of fun. Pop pop freedom pop pop. You know, they, they, make, they make a boom noise. That is true. The one thing about shooting that I that I never really I just I don't like super I'm just an, a grouchy old man producer John we'll leave producer Mark out of this because he's like yeah that's right I'm a grouchy old man and I don't like super loud noises you know this is the thing I I had somebody uh, sitting next to me recently at a restaurant who thought that it was okay and these were adults these are not little kids people in their in their forties and fifties there's like six of them and they kept showing each other. Like, haha! look at this YouTube video that I'm going to blast on my phone and show to other people at a restaurant. And I sit here, I'm like, okay, I mean, I can play this game too. What if I showed up at a restaurant and I said, I like to put a boombox on the table and just blast my favorite, my favorite music from the 90s. You know, I could sit here and I would just be playing the cardigans and uh, the cranberries as loud as... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Zombie, zombie. I wonder how many people, yeah, I don't think that many people in the audience are catching that one. It's unlikely. Maybe a little bit. They were actually pretty decent. Um, all right. Gina. She's not Mina. She's Gina. Hi again, Buck. So in discussing Bernie Sanders and the fact that he doesn't get it, I disagree. I fully believe he gets it and is fully aware of all that will happen with complete government control of our lives. The housing thing, he knows that it will result in Ukraine housing circa 1974, projects everywhere where there's only misery and government control. As with healthcare, education, business, diet, drugs, Bernie wants the Saul Alinsky model. He has spent years studying it. It is the end game. While it may seem ignorant, he may seem ignorant to the costs and stupid. He is not. He just hopes we are. Shields high. Gina, you could be right. Uh, it's very hard to know with libs whether they just don't know or they don't care about what's going to happen with the policies that they want and, and the realities of the things they advocate for. Make sure, team, you subscribe now to The Buck Sexton Show starting Monday, unless we have some technical difficulties. It might be delayed a couple of days. But starting Monday, we should have the show up every day at 3 Eastern. You can listen as a podcast as, as much as you want, whenever you want, 3 Eastern, Monday through Friday. Download the show, iTunes, the iHeartRadio app, and if you like listening, on, of course, on your local station, we'll still be on your local station. Nothing changes there at all, but if you like to get an early listen in or if you want to be able to listen on demand, then uh, you can do it via podcast. So subscribe on iTunes, The Buck Sexton Show, or on Spotify or on the iHeart app or however you listen. Until tomorrow, Shields High.